You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 28th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I am Marcus Hippi. Coming up on today's programme. Further arrests are made following Covid protests in China's major cities, but is Beijing preparing to put a halt to the demonstrations? Also ahead, France's President Emmanuel Macron is to make just his second official visit to the United States. We'll examine Franco-American relations. Plus, the day's business news, and then Fernando Augusto Pacheco will be here to unpack the FIFA World Cup in Qatar. Hello, Marcus. Today we discuss the football idol Brazil needs and record TV ratings for the World Cup. All that's right here on The Briefing with me, Marcus Hippi. Police in Shanghai have been detaining more people following protests against China's strict COVID-19 measures. Demonstrations erupted over the weekend when people gathered in some of China's largest cities, with some calling for President Xi Jinping to resign. Jonathan Cheng, China bureau chief at the Wall Street Journal, told George Godwin why a fire in Urumqi in the Xinjiang region has forced people onto the streets across the country. Obviously, Xinjiang has been in the news for the last few years, largely because of Beijing's treatment of the Uyghur minority there. But it's not directly related to that per se, but there was a fire in a residential tower there that that killed 10 people. And even though the authorities have denied it, most people who have uh, been following that news within China have come to the conclusion that... The cause of the deaths was effectively because this building was under lockdown and people were trapped in this building and couldn't escape because of strict COVID rules that remain in place almost three years after the initial outbreak. So tell us what's happened now, particularly over this weekend, because we have seen these shouts for for Xi to go, for down with the Communist Party and all the rest of it. It seems to be pretty widespread. It is, and that's what makes this unusual. I mean, you see occasionally protests in China. Obviously, this is not a country where public demonstrations are encouraged. In fact, quite to the contrary, they're very rapidly suppressed and and punished, typically. But in this case, what you're seeing is this this really rare, I I don't know if I'd call it spontaneous. It's certainly not coordinated in the sense that there's no single mastermind here, but I think many people in China, having basically been subjected to these controls now for for three years, we're about to enter the fourth year of COVID here, have, have kind of concluded that they've had enough. And, you know, there were a couple of signs that people had seized on to look for some hope that perhaps there was going to be an easing of these measures. And I think with each, you know, little glimmer of hope that came, the Communist Party came out and basically said, no, we're going to stick to this. Persistence is victory. And as we head into the winter, you see cases rising and you see uh, these rules not get any lighter of anything. It's the same old rules. And I think people are, they've just had enough. And and so, you know, the Arumchi fire was a catalyzing moment. But I think what it really did, of course, was it just sort of was an excuse almost for everyone to, to, to stand up and, and express themselves. 
That was Jonathan Cheng speaking to us a bit earlier. Let's unpack this further now with the founder of China Dialogue, Isabel Hilton. Isabel, welcome to the programme. Could you first tell us what you think about the situation? How exceptional are the protests we are seeing across China? Oh, they're definitely exceptional. I mean, as Jonathan was saying, you do see protests in China. They tend to be over specific local issues against, you know, specific abuses by local government. They're very rarely targeted at the party, at the leadership, at the system, because that is regarded as treason. And that can, you know, that is a career or a life ending move. So the the, the courage of the people who have been driven uh, onto the streets by COVID, but then have, uh, uh, you know, gone beyond COVID to call for political change is is quite unusual and, and fairly remarkable. And it does appear to be fairly widespread, though I would enter the caveat that actually we don't know. We are looking at images that people have captured. Um, they're from all over China. They're fairly extraordinary demonstrations. But what is very hard to gauge is the scale within any given city of, of those demonstrations or the longevity. We see these snapshots rather than, you know, a long moment. So it, it's quite hard to be accurate, but but unusual, absolutely. Do we have an idea to which extent these protests are still about COVID restrictions and to which extent about something else? As, as has been mentioned already, protesters have been heard calling for the freedom of press, for example, and also for the president to resign. Yes, and and you see, uh, you know, when when protests take hold, you tend to get a particular meme, and in this instance, the particular meme is is the holding up of a of a white a blank sheet of paper, which uh, is obviously a symbol for censorship. And I was watching a, 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 a video of a young woman in an absolute third tier city, uh, not not anywhere, you know, a third tier city in Zhejiang in central China with a, a tape over her mouth, holding a white sheet of paper, chains on her wrists, walking just very, very calmly down uh, an ordinary street. Now, that's, you know, that's a pretty um, brave thing to do. She's easily identifiable. She is making a, a point which is really not about um, COVID or goes way beyond COVID. Now, how many people there are, we don't know, but you can be absolutely sure that they will be targeted. The other thing that I did notice is that there's a lot of chant and response going on in the slogans and some of that chant and response has picked up on what was on a banner that appeared on a bridge in Beijing just before the 20th party congress and it said a whole series of things like we calling we want we want uh, um, we we don't want uh, dictators for life we want elections we want freedom we don't want lockdown we want food and you can hear these these slogans being chanted uh, again all over China. Again, what's the scale? But I think the speed at which it's happened is indicative that there are really a lot of very, very weary, fed up people and that they blame the government. Do you think Beijing can control the situation? Yes, I think they probably can. I think quite how they control the situation is what they're thinking about. Um, but Beijing has ways. Uh, I mean, sometimes they, they are strict, straightforwardly brutal. But in other situations, they try to negotiate a bit, you know, try to do triage, separate out the terminally fed up from the uh, merely irritated today, that kind of thing. So I would expect to see an accelerated vaccination 
program, for example, I would expect to see a rebuke of abuses by local officials because the local officials have been over implementing the policy. And it's quite convenient for Beijing to try to deflect the anger back on uh, lower level officials who could, who can then be punished, takes it away from the central government. The central government can then say, look, we're looking after your interests. They'll pick off the people with an overtly political message and they will try to reassure the others that they are they have listened and that they will be on the case. What we're seeing in terms of control is an, an increasing um, presence of police, huge numbers of police now on, on the streets of major cities. We probably see some water cannon get deployed if it needs to be. I think we're quite a long way off anyone being shot. I hope I'm right. I hope so too. Just finally, Isabel, is it becoming clear that China will have to change its COVID policy? Yes. I mean, I think it's absolutely a blind alley, but um, but they're a bit stuck uh, because the because of the low vaccination rate and the relative ineffectiveness of, of the Chinese vaccines. But again, you could, you know, uh, you could introduce a, a, an mRNA vaccine. There are there are also uh, there are some uh, treatments coming coming online which might help. So what I'm sure they would like to do is is be able to open up without a very high death rate because the low death rate has been a key point of propaganda for the party showing look we care about you look at these irresponsible democracies people are dying in enormous numbers were that to happen in china you would really the party would really be discredited so it's choosing to maintain its credibility in this very, very limited area uh, beyond uh, taking the risk, if you like, of of, of a, a pandemic that gets out of control again. Thank you very much, Isabel. That was the founder of China Dialogue, Isabel Hilton. And now here is Monica Stomedwoods with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Marcus. Reuters reports that the Pentagon is considering a proposal from Boeing to supply Ukraine with small precision bombs that can be attached to rockets. It's thought that the move would allow the Ukrainian military to strike targets far behind Russian lines. There have been several arrests in Brussels following Morocco's victory over Belgium in a World Cup match in Qatar. Dozens of football fans, some of them displaying Moroccan flags, clashed with riot police. Water cannon and tear gas were used to disperse the crowds. And here, the UK government has said it plans to make over a billion pounds of public funding available for home insulation projects from early next year. The move's an attempt to widen access to assistance, previously only available to lower-income households. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thank you very much, Tom. The French President Emmanuel Macron will travel to the White House this week for just his second state visit to the United States. It follows a very public spat between Washington and Paris over America's new security pact with the UK and Australia. So what is the purpose of Macron's visit? Philippe Marlier is a professor of French and European politics at University College London and he joins me in the studio. Welcome to the programme. Philip, it's been over four years since Emmanuel Macron last visited the White House and obviously the United States has got a new president since then, but how different are the relations between France and the US compared to 2018? Well, as you as you said, you know, the relations have been of late not so good, no, no, not so smooth. You know, they've, they've been in particular a year ago, this big uh, feud between, uh, on the one hand, the French and then the UK, the US and Australia, you know, who, who which uh, torpedoed 
a major uh, a submarine contract. So I think that that left really bad taste in in on the French side in the French's uh, uh, mouth, so to speak. So I think relationship between the U.S. and France are, are never easy, uh, although they are of course uh, allies. And I think this visit is is there absolutely to consolidate this relation to highlight. Um, uh, but uh, to highlight Franco-U.S. friendship and also to discuss a lot of economic issues which are very important uh, and also the, the position of France and the U.S. with regards to the war in Ukraine. Uh, France has been uh, criticized, Macron himself has been criticized uh, by the U.S. and also by a number of uh, Central Eastern European countries for, uh, you know, uh, keeping in touch with uh, Putin more than it should have. Uh, at the start of the war, for also not providing enough uh, military aid. So these are, of course, uh, big issues that they have to discuss. And also uh, they have to discuss the uh, the sort of uh, the new threat, which is uh, for the time being an economic threat coming from China. So a lot of things. But I think essentially they will they will concentrate on, on economic issues. Quite a few things to, to talk about over here before we talk about Ukraine, before we talk about China. Let's let's still look at the relations between France and the US at the moment. I'm wondering how long-term damage did the security pact Washington did with the UK and Australia cause? How much trust is there between Washington and, and Paris at the moment? It's very difficult to tell because, of course, in public, uh, they play, of course, the friendship card and they have to. But I think, yes, it, it's very clear that a year ago when this uh, big sum, this big contract about, uh, you know, the sale of submarines to Australia uh, was uh, ditched at the very last minute. And it's uh, turned out that, in fact, the Americans and the British were involved in that. I think, of course, that the, the, the French were uh, not happy about it. And there is still probably, as we speak, a uh, sort of uh, slight distrust on the part on the part of France. But I think uh, of late, what have been really uh, on top of the agenda is really close ties, uh, a need to uh, sort of have a united front against against the the Russian threat against Putin. Uh, aid to Ukraine and I think again on that probably there are some differences that uh, will be uh, sort of a the need to iron them out um, but I think this is essentially probably a thing over the past. I think there's a new thing in, a, in fact which is again an economic issue, the so-called US Inflation Reduction Act uh, with the acronym, strange acronym of IRA. I think it's essentially a massive subsidy package which uh, Biden is giving to his uh, uh, American business and utilities. And of course, France is unhappy about it because he's that as, as unfair uh, competition. You know, it is not allowed uh, in EU, um, EU law to uh, subsidize uh, national, national firms. So it makes it much more difficult for, for uh, French and European uh, firms in general to penetrate the American market. So they, he will sort of plead on behalf of his uh, European partners and also for, on behalf of France to get exemptions to, to that, uh, similar to the ones which uh, Mexico and Canada uh, received uh, lately, which is, for instance, it's not simply France. The uh, German car industry is very much hit by it. Much more difficult to sell cars in the very protected uh, US market now. If we if we look at the situation in in Ukraine, I'm wondering how much closer has has that war in Ukraine 
brought Paris and Washington to each other. And you also mentioned that there are some differences, even though these countries are are pretty united as a front with other Western nations. What are those small things that need to be ironed out? Well, when it comes to geopolitics, never easy between the US and France, as I said earlier. And I think France, you know, since Charles de Gaulle has a sort of ambition, probably uh, punching above its belt, to be uh, a playmaker in world affairs. So that was, in a sense, uh, what Macron tried to do at the, you know, until the, the very first moments of the war by being on the phone with Putin. And I was very much, he was, he was criticized for that because he, at some point it, it was clear that uh, his, uh, his approach was uh, counterproductive. So I think now we can say that France and Macron are clearly on the side of you know, all the um, um, democracies in the West, notably, which fight Putin and sees Putin as, as a major threat to, to world peace. However, there are still differences because uh, you can here and there, Macron can make a speech saying, well, let's not humiliate uh, Putin and Russia. Uh, another time he was in Rome a few days or weeks ago saying that probably time has come to negotiate and time for peace has come. These are not the things that Biden would be quite ready to see yet, at least publicly. And also one has to take into account the, the sort of French elites, media, uh, politics, left and right, the, uh, the people working in foreign affairs, which traditionally have always been wary of being too aligned, too closely aligned with the US. You know, again, France pay, playing a different card, a bit of being autonomous. But of course, there are also critiques and, and starting with, you know, critiques in France saying, well, that's all very well to be autonomous. But, you know, the days of Charles de Gaulle are over and now we, France doesn't have the means mm. to dictate what is to be done. Uh, for instance, the military aid has been quite modest on the part of France, you know, they, 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 because of the, the, the military budgets have been quite depleted uh, the past years. You mentioned China already earlier. In, in, in which role will that country be discussed and, and what are the issues Macron and Biden are going to tackle? I think regarding China, I think the French position would be again to sort of uh, to acknowledge, of course, like the U.S., that China has now has now become a sort of a, of course it's been a major power and also a economically a power which which could be become a threat to European and American economies. But again, the when you listen to Macron carefully, you realize that probably uh, he wouldn't want to be too uh, uh, too jugular with, with with China as opposed to 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 America, which has been more critical lately. So, again, an attempt to be uh, in between in between uh, major powers, an attempt to sort of uh, be in a role of negotiator and and. Uh, uh, whether France has the means to achieve that, it remains to that remains to be seen. It's going to be a busy visit. Just, just finally, Philip, I'm wondering what does, what are the things stopping Macron's priority list at the moment? What do, is it that he would like to take home from Washington? I think it's very much interesting in a deal on energy, notably nuclear pa uh, power energy. You know, France has a, a lot of uh, a large nuclear uh, plant, uh, which is getting old and, and uh, needs to be fixed. And I think he's uh, very much in touch with uh, experts on the US style to 
come uh, to France to repair some of the plants and also to develop new ones. And France, France has always been pushing hard traditionally for more nuclear energy and development of nuclear plants. And I think on that, that will be, I think, a very important uh, topic of uh, discussion with uh, President Biden. It's going to be interesting to see if that's going to work out in Washington, D.C. Philip Malia, thank you very much for joining us today. It is 12.20 here in London. You are with The Briefing. The Foreign Desk is Monocle 24's weekly global affairs programme. We tackle the world's biggest news stories as well as those left untold. If actually you speak to the ordinary people, their aspirations is for a unified country, whether you talk to business people, to school teachers, to market traders and so on and so forth, across the board, is they want to see their country recreated as it was, only this time as a democratic, accountable system. Our expert guests offer in-depth analysis and first-hand experience. In one of the Ebola treatment centres I went to had been burned down by a community that were very resentful and frightened of Ebola, and they still have a bunker in the middle. They've dug a big, deep bunker where they can hide if people come and shoot at them. The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, is available every Saturday from midday London time, right here on Monocle 24. Welcome back. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. I am Markus Hippi. We continue with the latest business news with Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. Thanks for joining us as always, Ewan. We were hearing at the top of the show about the COVID protests in China, and that's something that is proving to be a, quite a big problem for Apple. How much can you tell us? Marcus, yes, of course, as well as being a key political story, the protests in China are also a big, big business story. Apple's uh, manufacturing plant, its main iPhone manufacturing plant, is run by a Taiwanese company called Foxconn. The enormous plant, which employs as many as 200,000 workers during peak iPhone production season, uh, is run by the uh, the Taiwanese company. Uh, and it is facing a deficit of as many as 6 million iPhone Pro uh, units this year. That's uh, an estimate, uh, according to Bloomberg uh, sources. Now, the campus has been racked by lockdowns and work unrest for weeks. It hasn't just started happening in the recent days. Uh, COVID infections uh, left Foxconn and the local authorities struggling to contain the outbreak. A lot of protests uh, at the plant. Now, the uh, facility produces the vast majority of the iPhone 14 Pro and Pro Max devices, and those are Apple's most in-demand handsets this year. The company has been looking at diversifying its supply, but they do come out of China at the moment, and that is causing a lot of issues for the company. It's really a stark reminder of the risks of uh, Apple having its vast supply chain uh, in China and when these kind of restrictions come into place uh, it causes a lot of problems for the company. The uh, Foxconn has been responding in recent weeks by offering bonuses to workers who are unhappy to leave the plant and return home. It's now over the last weekend added a bonus for workers who are going to stay there during January and February of much as £1,800 a month they're going to be offered to stay at the plant. So uh, the company really trying to make sure that production doesn't fall out of place. Let's continue with news from London next. and why is UK energy policy proving to be so controversial for Conservative MPs? Yeah, so Rishi Sunak, the UK Prime Minister, is facing potentially a second rebellion on the same piece of legislation. He already had to back down 
on house building after a number of Conservative MPs said they wouldn't back uh, further house building national targets on house building in the UK. Of course, a very uh, controversial subject amongst Conservative MPs, many of whom represent uh, rural areas where their constituents just don't want more houses built. And now on energy policy, looks like he may have to back down as well. Uh, so the controversy is over onshore wind. Now, the UK has a lot of offshore wind, lots of power from offshore wind production. It's actually the second biggest producer of offshore electricity in the world after China. But onshore wind has effectively been banned by the government for a number of years, again because of uh, opposition to building wind turbines in the countryside. And now uh, more than 20 Conservative MPs, including, interestingly, uh, both Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, Rishi Sunak's uh, two predecessors, uh, uh, have uh, said they want to uh, inc- encourage building new wind farms in the countryside. So this is uh, uh, in, contra- in contrast to the policies. That means that Sunak may have to back down on this. Remember, Richard Sunak has a majority of 69 in Parliament. So it means he can only afford to lose the votes of about 35 Conservative MPs before he's in trouble. Labour, the opposition party, uh, backs this particular change. They want to see more wind farms. The problem uh, for the government is that it is useful, uh, it is cheap to provide, uh, uh, to produce wind power, it is green and it is cheap, but it is controversial in those countryside areas. So another uh, row for the Prime Minister. Quite a headache for Harish Sunak indeed. Yuan, thank you very much for joining us. That was Bloomberg's Yuan Potts and you're with the briefing. Finally, on today's programme, we are going to take a closer look at some of the stories making news at the World Cup in Qatar. I'm joined in the studio by our own Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Hello, Fernando. How are you today? Very good. Very good, Marcos. Besides, of course, the exciting uh, football matches a bit later today. Uh, but I decided to select a few stories, I think, about the World Cup that is not necessarily just about football. Uh, if I may start, uh, let's talk about the TV ratings for this World Cup. I was very curious about it because there's been a lot of talk about boycott in the event. And, you know, because of the human rights situation in Qatar, their treatment to LGBTQ populations and the treatment for migrant workers. But the reality is, Marcus, even with all those problems, people still want to watch the matches. There's been record-breaking numbers. Look at the US. Uh, their match against England, which was a little bit of a boring match, I have to add, um, had the record of the most watched men's football match ever in the country, with 15.3 million viewers of Americans watching this. This is remarkable, uh, remembering that the Americans, you know, I think football is becoming more and more important there, but it's not their main sport. I'm wondering if these ratings reflect how football is indeed getting more more popular over there in that country. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, especially women's football, that was the case already. But I think we can say... You know, we can say this with confidence that men's football is doing the same as well. But it's not just the USA. I mean, even football-mad countries like France and Brazil, they're recording their highest uh, ratings. Look at France. Uh, Their latest match was the best rating of the year. And even in Brazil, uh, it's been the highest uh, audience on television since 2006. So, you know, clearly there's still very much a desire and I, I wonder if you're going to ask me, are there any countries that are bucking the trend? There are. Are there any countries <laughs> bucking the trend for them? Sorry, I was forcing that question on you. Apparently so. Apparently Germany, uh, the ratings are a little bit down. Mm-hmm. It, it's yeah. not a disaster, but, you know, apparently some people there are boycotting or perhaps Germany is not doing that well as what's, well. What's the mood in Brazil now? What is making headlines in your home country? Well, that's the, our second story. I think this is interesting because... 
people say that football can heal a nation in a way. I think this is uh, can be a, an exaggerated statement, but I think it could happen in Brazil. Uh, in the first match, a player called Richarlison, he scored two goals, uh, beautiful goals as well. A and it's interesting because a lot of Brazilians, they were supportive of the Brazilian national team but they were a bit embarrassed because some players like Neymar uh, you know he, he he voted Bolsonaro and he was very clear about that uh, and as you know the country is very divided in political terms so it became a little bit awkward to support the national football team without thinking that you're also a Bolsonaro supporter but with his Charleston it's different he is a man he supports several cha charities I remember during COVID in Brazil he was one of the first ones to go on TV and say please go and vaccinate Uh, he's always uh, supporting anti-racism groups, among else. He didn't declare his vote, uh, but people think he's progressive and they're happy to have someone like him. Did the Brazilian team at every point have discussions of the kind we saw in the UK, for example, how the whole team wanted to wear those one love armbands and so forth? Is the Brazilian team, is it the culture over there for the, for the team to make a statement and to stand for good things? Less so than uh, in the case of England, for example. But I wouldn't say that they don't they can be a little bit political they, there's been quite a big movement in Brazil an anti-racism movement anti-homophobia as well but perhaps not in the same way as you see it in England but I hope it's changing I mean I think some players are feeling a little bit more brave uh, to you know to show their political uh, convictions as well Finally, we should talk about obviously what's been making headlines today. What happened in Belgium after after the country lost the match against Morocco? A lot of unrest. Oh, a lot of unrest. Uh, so uh, basically, you know, some people were lifting fires in the streets. They were throwing missiles at the police. It's been it's been huge and the reason for that apparently we i mean i can't say for sure that that was the only reason but was the fact that you know belgium lost uh, to morocco there was quite a bit of a surprise so there's been a lot of unrest uh, in belgium uh, for that that just shows how you know how people feel very passionate but in a very bad way uh, when it comes to football but yeah the scenes in the city center of brussels they were, they were frankly quite awful i think even the mayor said avoid uh, the area if you're a football fan uh, as well That's that's always so confusing seeing that who are those people who want to go and break break windows when when their country loses a football match. Just finally, Fernando, what are you looking forward to next? I mean, if you do like football, today's a very good day for it. I think just in about 20-30 minutes from now, South Korea and Ghana will be playing Brazil and Switzerland as well at 4 p.m. UK time. But I think You know, I have to say, at 7 p.m. there's a very special match, Portugal and Uruguay. They're two very good, one of you know, one of the best uh, countries when it comes to football. Uh, so that's definitely a match I'll be watching. A busy day ahead. Thank you very much, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Rhys James. Our researcher was Emily Sands and our studio manager was Adam Heaton. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. That's at 2000 in Beijing, midday here in London and 7am in Washington, D.C. I am Marcus Hippie. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>